good event. All right, my only job today is to introduce our guest speaker, uh, Clay Harris. Clay, would you come on up here? Clay works with crew up in, near Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'll let him kind of give you a little bit more of his bio, but for now, would you guys just welcome Clay? All right, good morning. I'm excited to be here. Um, it's funny to me that I'm here because I actually just I met John. This is the second time I've met Pastor John. Um, but I know Jim and Tia Alexander and their family, and they in, I was hanging out with them this summer and met with them, and we were talking one evening, and they were just describing all the amazing things that are going on at their church, the community you guys have, the uh, engagement you're doing with the culture and cultural issues. And I just said, I want to meet your pastor. I would love to meet this man that's leading this church. And so Jim made a couple phone calls, and we were able to connect over the summer for a little bit. And one of the privileges that you get as a kind of a guest preacher is just to say, uh, you guys have an amazing pastor. And I get to brag on your pastor a little bit. And so just I want to encourage you. Like, you have a really godly man leading you who is thoughtful and considerate, and he's um, just really engaging hard issues, and he's shepherding you guys well. And so treat him well, care for him well, care for his family, love him well, because he really is a gift. And I want him to thrive, and I want you guys to thrive. So I just take a little bit of time just to say thank you to Pastor John, and I want you to encourage you guys to love on him. But, you know, that naturally engenders the question, who in the world am I? Um, because if he barely knows me. So he's leaning a lot on Jim and Tia, and he's leaning a lot on crew. Um, so I'm uh, Clay Harris. I've been on staff with crew, uh, which is the U.S. Ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, and I've been on staff for about 16 years. And I have uh, five kids uh, who are 12 to 5, which if you then shift the match means we had five kids, six and under. So we're still recovering. Um, and on top of that, we have four cats. Four. And we, these are not farm cats. We don't live in the country. Like, we're in a house that's too small for four cats. And we have a dog and a gerbil. We used to have two gerbils, but I did say we have four cats. Four cats plus two gerbils equals one less gerbil. And so... Um, so I serve on, I, I've done kind of ministry, done evangelism and discipleship around Minneapolis-St. Paul. My wife and I moved overseas. We lived in Central Asia for a period of time, and I've done kind of leadership development. And, and for the past number of years, I've done theological development and culture is what we call it within crew. And the emphasis of my job is to help give crew staff the biblical and theological tools they need to do evangelism and discipleship in today's culture. To, to handle and tackle really complex theological issues like LGBT questions in ministry or race and ethnicity. To, to tackle these questions in a way that is both compassionate to people and faithful to scripture. And so that's my job. I, I work with a, with a team and I love doing it and have been doing it for a number of years. Um, if you at all are interested in hearing more about what I do. So my wife and I are building up our team of kind of both financial and non-financial supporters. I'd love to chat with you afterwards, or you can connect with Jim and Tia or, or Pastor John as well. But as a, you know, awkward transition, let me just pray for us and get going into our sermon, okay? Father, we thank you so much for who you are, that you are the God who gives you are the God who is, who was, who always will be. You are Yahweh, and we worship you. 
Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for a Sunday morning like this where we can turn our attention to you and we can worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title for my message this morning, so I, I come from, you know, pretty kind of white evangelical backgrounds where, where sermon titles were not important. For the past five, you know, three years, I've been a part of my church as a black pastor, and like sermon titles are like the thing. Like, if you don't title your sermon, he'll come up afterwards and title it for you. So sermon titles are a big thing. So the, the title for this sermon is Beyond the Fictive Family, which naturally presents the question, what in the world is a fictive family? And we'll get there for now. But that's the title, Beyond the Fictive Family. And so before we get into it, I want to think a little bit about what, what is family. Family, f- for all of us, is different. So I grew up with, um, I'm realizing I didn't set a timer and I have really bad time management. So anyways, um, so I grew up with my brother and myself, my mom and my dad, and my grandmother lived with us for as long as I can remember. That was my family, five of us. There were five seats around the table. Anybody ever asked me as a kid, how many people are in your family? I said five. That was my family. That was normal for me. I have other friends whose family, they come from um, families of divorce. Both parents are you know divorced and remarried, so they've got stepchildren or, you know, step-siblings, and they've got half-siblings, and, and that is family for them. Two of our, our five kids are adopted, and so they're not biologically related to us, which means they have biological parents and they have adoptive parents. So they've got multiple sets, and then they've got siblings who are not a biologically related to them, but whom they see more as siblings than their biologically related siblings whom they never, never see. And yet, all of that is family to them. And um, last year, I was teaching my kids some kind of early American history, and we were talking about the Iroquois people. And the Iroquois had, the ancient Iroquois had these things called long, long houses. And so they'd be about from here to the end of the room, I mean, to, probably to the front door. And they were wide enough. And what they had was each section of the long house had kind of what we might call as like a nuclear family, right? So they had a mom and a dad and their kids. But the interesting thing was, that's not what they considered their family. The entire clan was family to them. And they were all related by a, a matriarchal ancestor, but that was family to them. And so family can mean different things to many different people. We all have some sort of family. We all have some sort of concept of family. And, but beyond that, some families have even been defined by choice. And so if you think of in the military, you join the military, and then you join a sisterhood or a brotherhood in the military. Or if you, uh, for some of the Hispanic people in the room, maybe you have compensagos. You have this kind of extended family relationship. And they are more by choice than they are simply by biology or marriage. And those are what sociologists call a fictive family. So it's not a family created by blood or marriage, but it's a family created by choice. And for most sociologists, they put us the church in that category of a fictive family, a family that's created by choice. And you can, you can see why they would do that, right? None of, most of us, I mean, you're, you're probably related to somebody in this room by either marriage or biology, but not all of us are related to each other. That, that's a very different kind of church, right? That, 
very small church, hopefully. Otherwise, it's a very uncomfortable church. Um, but that's why they would call it a fictive family. And what I want to argue today is that sociologists actually don't have a category for what the church is. Because they only have given themselves two categories, right? Biology or, or marriage and everything else, they, they've put us over here. But the church is something radically different, something absolutely new. We are a different kind of family. God is calling us to move beyond a biological family. He's calling us to move beyond these families of choice and into this family that we have been born into, the family of God, the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about, again, this third way of being a family, that we are not simply biologically related or by marriage. We're not simply related by choice, but there's something new that happened, something absolutely supernatural that has happened to us when we were born again and became Christians. So uh, Pastor John preached briefly a couple weeks ago uh, on Matthew 12, and that's going to be our passage again. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, go ahead and turn to Matthew 12, 46. So in this passage, it, it's, a, it's a transition passage between sections in Matthew. And so you have this transition where Jesus has been kind of railing on the Pharisees, and he's kind of been articulating the kingdom of God to these Pharisees. And he's moving to where he's going to use more parables. And, and as kind of this transition story, Matthew includes this story to help explain who is and who is not in the kingdom of God. So let's read together. Matthew 12, uh, 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. Wanting to speak to him, someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother, my brother and my sister and my mother. So Jesus responds to this interruption. He's, he's teaching his disciples and he's interrupted, right? Like knock, knock, knock on the door. Hey, your, your mom and, and your brothers are outside. And Jesus responds with a question and then a really stark claim. And on the surface of this, this is actually a pretty troubling passage, right? Like it's, it's kind of confusing. It's maybe even like feels hurtful, but we know that Jesus loves his mom. We know that he loves his family. And so we're a little confused, but Matthew is trying to help us understand the kingdom of God. As the main theme of Matthew is this kingdom of God. And he wants us to understand who we are in the kingdom of God. And when Mark retells this story, he retells it, but he includes the phrase, they thought he was out of his mind, right? So, so Jesus' mothers and brothers are knocking on the door because they thought he was, he was out of his mind. And, but Matthew doesn't include that because he doesn't, he doesn't actually care about that. He just wants to get to the point of who is family, who are his disciples. And in the commentary, True to Our Native Land, an African-American commentary, Michael Joseph Brown says this, in Jesus' day, the extended family was all important. It was the source of one's status and primary network. In contrast, a surrogate family, or what anthropologists call a fictive family, could serve the same function. Matthew sees the church 
as this surrogate household. And again, what Brown is saying is that without an extended family, if Jesus really did forsake his family, he has nothing. He, he has nothing. And so, but he could create another family around him. And what Brown is trying to say is that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And I, and I want to say, yes, he is because we have no good terms for it, but he's doing something so much more. Jesus is not just simply trying to extend an influential social network. He's trying to create the foundation of a new society, of the kingdom of God. Every society has had as its backbone the family. It's how God created it. Families are the backbones of society. And why did he do that? He did that so that one day he could create a new family called the church. And we would have language and understanding of what the church is. Don't, don't get those backwards, right? Don't think that God said, oh, hey, here's a good idea. We've got this family. Let's call the church a family because then people will have an idea. But he said, no, I'm gonna I want someday to create the family of God. I want people to know what it means to be the family. So I'm going to put them in family units so that they would understand. And we see this in, in John 3. Nicodemus Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he tells them, everyone needs to be born again of water and of spirit. So you see, when you are born again, you are born into a new family, right? You, all of us were born into some sort of family. Nobody is here who was not born into a family because you all had a mother, right? So you all had a family. But Jesus is saying, you have to be born again into a new family, to a living family, this family. And he's saying, this is what's essential. And Jesus rebukes Nicodemus because he's like, how could that be? How could I be born again, right? And Jesus is like, do you not see? There is a world you can see, and there is a world you cannot see. There is a spiritual reality that is more true than the world you live in. And I want you to see, Nicodemus, that that's the world you have to be born into. You have to have your eyes open, the eyes of your heart open, so that you might see and believe. And so there is no other family like the church. There's no other family like the family of God, where you are born not only by blood, but you're born by the Spirit. You're reborn into this new spiritual family. You have been transferred from the kingdom of um, darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Your Father, when we we're all born, we we're all born into the Father of lies, right? That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Your Father is the Father of lies. And they're like, what, what about Abraham? And he's saying, no, you all are born enslaved to sin. Only through new birth can you be born again into the family of God. And think of what is one of the most common ways we talk about God. He is our Father. He is our Father in the new family. We are brothers and sisters with Christ our brother, and God is our Father. This is meant to be the essential part of who we are. As we read the Bible, the Bible is not simply for information. It's for transformation. And not simply just to kind of learn things and, and start acting different and we expect you to transform your life. But it's actually, remember, it's a spiritual book. The Holy Spirit empowers the words to cause you to change and be new. This is an incredible power. When God speaks, things happen. When he spoke, heaven and earth were created. When he spoke, the life came 
light came out. When he spoke, dead people live. When he spoke, dead hearts are caused to come alive again. When he speaks, something happens. And the same thing is true with the Bible. When the Bible uses words, they're not just meant to to be interesting words. They're meant to cause something to happen in you. So as we want to learn about what does it mean to be Christians, one thing we can do is say, okay, how how do the New Testament authors talk about Christians? And one of the self, there's several different ways that they kind of self-designations for Christians that the New Testament authors use. One of Paul's favorite ones is saints. So, so I have a, there's a podcast my wife listens to and she you know, says, hey, saints and ain'ts, right? So it's like you got saints, you got ain'ts, it, it creates a nice easy category. But you use saints. And what, what that is is a self-designation Paul uses to remind us that we were created to be holy. That God has made us holy So it's not just be holy, go and do something, but it is a reality. When you are born again, you are now holy, and Paul wants you to remember that. He wants you to remember that you are saints who sin, but we are always saints. But here's the amazing thing. Paul uses that only 30 times in the New Testament, which is a lot, but it's 30 times. The next self-designation that I want to talk about is believers, and that's used 97 times, three times as much, is believers. And what I think Paul and the other New Testament authors want us to know is that we are not just people who are saints, but we are people who believe something. That belief is central to our identity as Christians. We believe something about who Jesus is. We don't just think things and we don't just do things. We believe. We, in fact, we do because we believe. Right? You can't get that backward. We, we believe in who Jesus is. Therefore, we serve the poor. We believe who Jesus is. Therefore, we, we read our Bible and we pray because we believe He is the king, and he is the greatest reality in the world, and he is the most satisfying thing we could ever have. We forsake everything else because we believe. And so what the New Testament authors are doing, what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, is as they use the word believer over and over again, believer, 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 they're trying to help you do something. If you have a child and you consistently tell them, I love you, I love you, I love you, You're building into that child this sense of, I am loved. But the opposite is true too, right? If you're consistently, you're stupid. You're stupid. Why do you do that? That's so stupid. And you consist, then they're internalizing that as well. The New Testament authors are doing the same thing. They're trying to build in you. But here's the amazing thing. Saints, 30 times. Believers, 97 times. Brothers and sisters, 271 times is used by the New Testament authors to try to communicate and to talk about who we are as a people. So when the New Testament authors are given, including Jesus, are given the opportunity to describe us as a people, by far, they say brothers and sisters. They say family language. And you think of father. By far, God is referred to as the father. How does Jesus, Abba, Father, Heavenly Father, 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 we're co-heirs, we are, Jesus is our brother. 
Every New Testament book, except for Titus and Jude, uses the language of brothers and sisters. The Greek word, just to Greek out on you for a second, is adelphoi. Now, before you think like I'm super, I read Greek worse than my son who's five reads English, okay? So it's like not a Greek expert. But adelphoi is this really powerful word. And, and you'll see if, you, if you're in the ESV and you read that, it, it's almost always translated as brothers. Because just like in Spanish, if I wanted to say mi hermanos, I would use the masculine plural to describe you. That's the same thing the Greek does. But it is probably better translated brothers and sisters because God wants all of us to know we have a seat at the table. If we are men and women, we are a part of God's family. And he wants us. And so he is telling us over and over again, you're a family, you're a family, you're a family, you're a family. All throughout the New Testament, he's telling us these commands. And he's like, you're a family. God wants you to, you're a family, you're family. Why? Why is he doing that? Why is family so important? And, and before we go there, I just, I want to give a caveat. Family, as we talked about, everybody has different families. But family also has been different for different people in this room. There are people in this room for whom family is a really hard word. Perhaps you had an alcoholic parent or an abusive parent. I, I have friends for whom the idea of their family of origin is so traumatizing for them. They have been in therapy for years. So when they think family, they're not thinking ooey gooey and gushy, right? They're not like, ah, oh, yes, I can't wait to be a part of God's family. They actually are kind of pushing against it. They're like, I don't want to be a part of a family because families hurt. Others of you had the most amazing families. Your parents were kind and compassionate. They thought about you. They, they loved on you. They, they built into you. And so what God wants to do when he's using the word family is God is always a redemptive, restorative God. He's always seeking to, to transform and to build you, to make you more like him. And so he wants you to take all the hard stuff and he wants the church to redeem it. As you come into the church with trauma, God wants to wrap his arms around you with, his, with your pastor. He wants to wrap his arms around you with the other, with the women in the church. And he wants to say, I love you no matter what. You are safe here. That's what God wants. He wants to redeem the idea of family for all the hardship that you have ever encountered. And he wants everything that's good about a family, he wants to say, all the more so will you experience that. Bring that into my family, and even more so you will experience love and security and tenderness. But we are, we are broken people, and that's why throughout the New Testament, God consistently says, be a family. Don't forget, you're a family. Be a family. You're going you're gonna to want to forget, but be a family. And Jesus obviously had, he had the best mom, right? He, hard to beat. Mary, right? You know, she's the one, she's more blessed than all other women. She was chosen to bear the Son of God. And yet Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. And we don't do the will of God to become, John said this in his devotion, we don't do the will of God to become his family, but as family, as saints, as believers, as ones who do, we Act like the family. And the spirit in us is calling out and longing to be family with one another. And I find it, again, just surprising that this family language is so predominant. Because if I asked, if you guys asked me, 
what, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, what's the best way you would talk about it? I would probably say in Christ. Like, I'm in Christ. That's, you know, the, as I've thought about, like, getting a tattoo over the years, I've always been like, how about in Christ? Like, that just seems to be paramount and foundational to what it means. And yet, Paul is saying, no. Yes, that's important. But even more foundational is that you're a family. He would say, call of me Adelphos. I am a brother. I am your brother. It's just incredible to me that they would find so much emphasis in what it means to be the family of God. Now, not all church traditions have, have completely thrown this away. You know, if you go into the Catholic church, you have the Holy Father, right? S- nuns are sisters. Priests are brothers. You have this familial language there. And in the black space, you'll often find you step in and say, brother, how are you? Sister, how are you? It's more common to find that language. And so, but it's not just language. We also want to see behaviors in actions. We want to become a family, not just you. So my, my goal for you is not to walk out of here and start calling each other brother and sister. Go for it. Amen, go for it. But I want you to treat each other like the best example of family you could ever have. Supporting one another, encouraging one another, loving, protecting, providing for one another. Jesus is our elder brother. He is the firstborn over all creation. We are co-heirs with Christ. Whether your your first family was created by friendship, or by marriage or adoption, it will ultimately end. God's family will never end. You have been born again into a new family, an eternal family, an everlasting family, a family filled with the Spirit, given a mission to do together, and God wants you to do that together as brothers and sisters. And so to kind of put flesh on this a little bit, I want to walk through two, two kind of passages that use this Adelphoi word of kind of brothers and sisters. So the first one is Hebrews 3.1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. So Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, share in the heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. This encouragement is made to us as a family. He's saying, family, act this way. This is the encouragement from which all other encouragements flow. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is the goal of the Christian life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your thoughts, your mind. Everything should be focused on who Jesus is, how he has come, and where we are going with him forever. We were made to be with God in the garden He walked with us in the cool of the garden. We were made to be with God on the mountain, looking at his face, beholding the face of Jesus. It's how we were made to be. Our souls were made to walk with God every moment of every day. You cannot do anything in the Christian life without being with God. And that's what this is a challenge to do. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. But here's the unique thing. The the brothers and sisters is plural. And the fix your is also plural. 
I think this is, this is a command that you as a body are to fix your collective minds on Jesus. This is not just a go into your prayer closet and fix your own eyes on Jesus. I don't think that's, that's not, not true. It's just not the main emphasis of this. This is this idea that you as a church are to be so wrapped up in Jesus. You as a church are to be so fixated on Jesus that you guys begin to look like him. You begin to act like him. You begin to be transformed into him. And as you are looking at Jesus together and your brother stumbles, you, you notice and you pick him up and you lift him up. As you notice your sister being weak and tired, you help her. You encourage her. That's what families do. And so it's to be fixed together, going the same direction as Jesus would go. We need one another to point out our blind spots. We need one another. This is the amazing thing, okay? There are over 7 billion people on the face of the earth. Every single one of them is made in the image of God. Every single one of them is utterly unique. There have never been two people who are identical, which means we have the most creative God one could even begin to consider because I can't even make like two paper airplanes differently. Right? And he's made, there's 7 billion people on the face of the earth right now that are different. And they each show who God is just a little differently. Whether it's, think of it, you have artists and, and musicians, you have speakers and teachers, you have prophets and apostles, you have evangelists, you have business people, you have so many different people who show God differently. And it's the image of God in me meets with the image of God in you and you and you. We get together and we see God more clearly. And, and that's a motivation for evangelism, isn't it? Because I want to know God more. I want to see him more clearly. So I'm going to go out to the street and I'm going to meet somebody and I'm going to say, I want to meet an image bearer of God. I want to see. You can show me who God is. And I want you to meet the God whom you are designed to reflect. And so God wants us to fix our eyes on him. The second encouragement that I have for you, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So you want God with you? That's what I just said. That's the whole goal of the Christian life is to be with God. He tells us, Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church in this, this, this is his second or third letter to the church. They've had a really hard time. The first letter was kind of like a good slap in the face, right? You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. But they have received and repented. And now he's telling them, so much harm was done, be repaired. So much has happened, be repaired. And I think this is a word for us as a part of the American church, specifically the American evangelical church. We are divided and hurt. We are fractured. We more often look like the world out there than we do look like a different and unique family. The third way of Jesus that you guys have been talking about, we don't often look like that. We tend to look like one of the other ways. We tend to represent the world. And Jesus is saying, enough. I want you to act like the family of God. I want you to experience what that means. 
And so as you look in this room, realize that there are Democrats and Republicans and independents in this room. There are people who are egalitarian and complementarian. There are people who are, you know, infant baptism and, and adult baptism. There are people who are, you know, make American great again and when was America ever great, right? There are people in every tribe, in every belief that you can think of. And if they're not here, we want them to come, right? Like, we want somebody who is you know, following one of the other political parties to say, come, we want you to love Jesus. And we want to be a place where we can welcome them because our idea, our identity is not in the elephant or the donkey, it's in the risen lamb. It is in Christ alone. That's who we're focusing on. That's who we're thinking about. And so whether you are black lives matter or all lives matter, God wants you to be unified. He doesn't want you to check your brain at the door. He says, be convinced in your own mind. Do your research, study, but hear me, it is never your job to persuade another person. You are not responsible for the beliefs of anybody other than yourself. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your friends, no one in this church. You can't, and if you haven't already learned that, like, you should be realizing nothing you're going to do is going to change them. But you can, you can talk. The church should be the safest place to have these conversations, right? If you think of, you got, you know, crazy Uncle Bob at your family dinner, you can't kick him out, right? Like, you kind of wish you could at times. You're like, Bob, you don't need to come anymore. But, like, Bob gets to come because he's a part of the family. And then you realize, actually, you're the crazy Uncle Bob, right? Like, that's that, that wake-up moment that you're like, oh, that's me. And you're so glad that they're not kicking you out. That's what this family is meant to be. To be the place where you can come as your full self and be here. We want to be a family. We want you to honor your brothers and sisters. We want you to have compassion for them, to listen to them. This should be the safest place to bring your ideas and your thoughts. Bring them with humility. Talk to one another. We can be of one mind and still disagree. One time I was. Uh, in South Minneapolis, and I was walking, and this guy walked up to me and was like, hey, do you, do you have any money? I'd like to go to McDonald's and, and get some food. And we got to talking, and somehow I said something about God, and he's like, oh, oh, brother, I didn't, I didn't see you there. I didn't, I didn't see that you were my family. And he just gave me this big hug, and he's like, let's go to lunch together. It, what we need to realize is that it's not just this local family. It is the entire body of Christ who is our family. And Christ in them wants to meet Christ in you. Together, we need to act like the family. We need to love one another, encourage one another. We want to walk the streets looking for our family. And when we find them, we don't want to ask, which tribe of the family are you? Are you Baptist? Are you Presbyterian? Are you Me We're not asking that. We're just embracing them and saying, brother, sister, so good to meet you. I didn't see you there. Let's go have lunch. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your gifts to us. Thank you that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Thank you that you want us to know you and love you. 
Thank you that because of that, we are a family. Help us to love being a family. Help us to live out being a family. Convict us of ways that we can be a better family to one another. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.